This morning, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You know, if you're new here, that we read right through the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We always give out Bibles. Love to see people take a Bible at home. I didn't grow up reading the Bible, so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. So we're calling this series Rebuilding a Healthy Church because this was a church that started off well but quickly fell apart, quickly had some deep need for remodeling. And so Paul wrote this letter, and it's so relevant for us today because the church was struggling with division, difficulties, and lots of disorders like incest, immorality, lawsuits, misunderstanding of using spiritual gifts, um, unwillingness to put aside Christian liberties, causing people to stumble. Lots of the same problems that we have in the church today. So the first four chapters we said is about a division that was in that church. Now, the point I want to re reinforce here is that we're not divided in our church over wisdom. We divide in the American church over politics, pandemics, vaccines, many other things. But the principle is still the same. Now, Last week, Pastor John gave us a real insight into what their issue was. There was a division over the value of the gospel because in their culture, wisdom and the ability to speak in beautiful words was a high value. And so as John shared, the gospel has been intentionally designed by God to be unimpressive, an unimpressive message, unimpressive messengers, and unimpressive methods. In fact, John shared with me, some of his friends came up afterward and said, John, that message was really unimpressive. So I thought, hey, they're really, they're really applying it. But what Paul does here, beginning in chapter 2, is he turns the corner and he says, now, what I don't want you to misunderstand is this, that the gospel actually is very impressive. It's very wise. It's very valuable. So the unimpressiveness is not because in and of itself it's not valuable, it's because unbelievers are not capable of appraising the real value of it. So it seems so silly, so cheap, so stupid to them, but we learn that God gives us the ability to see that, no, this isn't unimpressive, this is powerful. We've all seen the antique roadshow. Oh yeah, I, I bought this vase at, um, at a yard sale for $2. Whoever sold that vase at the art sale found it very unimpressive and invaluable. So they sold it for $2, only to find out later, no, this is from the Ming Dynasty and it's worth $2 million. In many ways, the Christian faith is somewhat like that and God designed it that way. So what we're going to find this morning is that we want to answer this question, how can something like the gospel seem so wise to some people and so foolish to other people. I once shared the gospel of Christ with a couple, and when I got done, I asked them, does this make sense? And I won't tell you which gender, so you don't sort of go, men are smarter, women are smarter. But one of them said, that makes perfect sense. And the other one said, that doesn't make any sense at all. That had nothing to do with who was smarter. Why is it that some people find the Christian faith and coming to church attractive while others find it repulsive? Why is the message of Christ so staggering that we stand and sing and weep while others think it's so stupid? 
How can some people find it interesting while other people would be like, that was the most boring thing I ever heard? It's an interesting question. In fact, yesterday, one of the young men that I took with me to the Russia church, he said, I grew up going to church, he goes, but for years, when they would read the Bible, it was just black words on white pages. So what Paul is going to do now, look with me in verse 6, is he's going to introduce us to the idea that the gospel itself really is valuable. It really is wise. It really is special and beautiful, but only because God enables us to see that. So we're going to start in verses 6 through 9 and see the first thing that he wants us to know. And that is that unbelievers are incapable of understanding this beautiful gospel which is on God's mind. So the gospel is beautiful and wise and powerful, but unbelievers are incapable of, of grasping this beautiful gospel that's been on God's mind for a long time. So let's look at verse 6. He, he keeps downplaying wisdom as though the gospel's not wise, but then he says in verse 6, almost in contrast, yet, yet we do speak wisdom, but we speak this wisdom among those who are mature. But this wisdom, he says, is it's, it's not the wisdom of this age. It's not the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are passing away. In other words, we could say in, in, in our society, there's the Carl Sagan secular wisdom that explains the, the meaning of life from a godless perspective. And then there's the John Piper or, or some other god leader, John MacArthur's explanation, really the scriptural explanation of why things are the way they are. So Paul says, listen, just because the world doesn't think it's wise doesn't mean it's not wise. It really is wise. But only those, now he uses the word mature here. I think it would be better translated. This word can mean complete. I, I don't think he's, he's limiting this only to a certain group of Christians. He says, we speak God's wisdom among those who are complete. But he says in verse 7, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now, when you think about that, we just sang a song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Why does he call the gospel a mystery? And he says, this wisdom, this valuable gospel is hidden, which God predestined or, or predetermined it before the ages to our glory. In fact, he says, this wisdom none of the rulers of this age have understood. If, if they understood it, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. Well, well how can this be that, that, that they, they didn't understand it? Well, look at verse 9. Pastor John read a quote from Isaiah where it said, these things haven't entered our heart before. Look at verse 9. Paul's trying to show, here's why unbelievers don't understand it. Here's why they're incapable of seeing the value of the gospel. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, things which have not entered the heart of a man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So a couple things, like, let, let's just stick this idea through, that, that people who don't know the Lord are un, incapable of understanding the beauty and value of the gospel for various reasons. 
But I want you to start with this thought. The, the value of the gospel has been on God's mind since before creation. Let me think about this. He says, the gospel is a mystery, right? And he says, this mystery has been, verse 7, predetestined, predetermined, or predestined before the ages. So think about this. Before God ever spun the, 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 the planets into space and he made this little earthly globe, this, this planet on which he would unfold a drama of redemption, he thought this all through. Before the ages, he determined to create Adam. He envisioned that he would create you individually. He thought you in his mind. He determined that Christ would come and die. The Bible says the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. He determined to call out of this great mass of humanity that there would be a devil who would deceive and blind many of them. None of it took him by surprise like, oh no, now look what happened. All carefully thought out by God. He determined each one of those whom he would call to himself those that the Bible says have been predestined, those who he determined before the ages that he would bring them into a relationship of glorious blessing and one day conform them to his image and spend eternity with them. And so the value of the gospel has been on God's mind since before creation. But the Bible says we speak it in a mystery because a mystery is something that's hidden and later revealed. So we've all had somebody tell us something that they've known for a long time, but we didn't know. So for example, my wife always told me she was German. And then one day we were married for 30 years. She said, I'm Scandinavian. I said, you can't do that. You can't change your, you can't. So she said, well, I heard my grandmom say we're Scandinavian. I said, well, it doesn't matter. You told me for 30 years you're German. So, being a German, my wife decided then I'm going to get a, a, what do they call that test you get? You, yeah, the DNA. Sure enough, she's 35% Scandinavian. I'm like, hey, it was a mystery. It was hidden, okay? So the gospel, think about this. God from the beginning did not determine, in Genesis 1-1, he would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this God exists in three persons, equal in uh, nature, but distinct in their, uh, their roles and so forth. And I'm going to send my son to die on the cross. But this mystery was hidden. But over time, as God in his sovereign purposes unfolded truths about the coming of Jesus, we get this impression that, wait, he's got this thing all planned out. So when Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, he doesn't later go, hey, that's a good idea. Let me think about Jesus. All of it is planned out by God. In other words, the gospel, think about this, the gospel has been on God's mind since eternity past. But the value of the gospel, Paul tells us, is only available to those of us who are complete. And he doesn't tell us what that means yet. But I will say this, notice that in unfolding how valuable the gospel is, he doesn't miss the opportunity again to speak of the crucifixion. He doesn't just go, hey, if unbelievers could see the value of the gospel, they would love Jesus. No, he actually turns it around. He goes, if unbelievers could see the value of the gospel, they would have never crucified Jesus. 
So he brings us back to this great reality that the central and most beautiful part of the gospel is the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the pinnacle. That's the high point. That's the beauty point. And, 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 and I get why some people are like, I don't understand. Y'all are kind of half nuts. You get together and sing about the blood and stuff like that and all this gory stuff about cross, Jesus getting a beaten and nails and the crowns. Like, what's up with that? That's because to unbelievers, that doesn't make sense. But I can tell you this. If you don't like to sing about the crucifixion of Jesus, you're not ready for heaven. Because guess what you're going to do in heaven? We just went through the book of Revelation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. You purchased us to God with your blood. And so Paul reminds us that this beautiful, valuable gospel, unbelievers are incapable of understanding what's on God's mind. And they're completely disinterested in the crucifixion. But not only does it become valuable, because I've been around a lot of things that are valuable, but they're not beneficial to me. If my friend says, yo, you want to ride in my $100,000 car? Yeah, cool. That was valuable. I could go and, and behold a beautiful gem and say, that's valuable. But there's a difference between something being valuable and beneficial. So notice that Paul says, this gospel, he just slips in a little phrase there. He says, this gospel has been hidden by God, but then verse 7 says, it was predestined before the ages to our glory. You know what he means by that? This gospel is for our benefit. It's going to result in the privilege of knowing the glorious Lord Jesus and then sharing for eternity in all of the blessings of that, of being glorified with him, of being in a place with him where we will have unspeakable and unending joy. We've all had moments of like, wow, you see a guy that wins the Super Bowl, this is the greatest feeling in my life, right? But being with Jesus is going to be an ongoing adrenaline rush of joy. The Bible says, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, so the gospel is not just valuable, it's beneficial. But the point is, Paul says, unfortunately, the people of this world, they, they don't understand it. But now we come to the second point, and, and that is this. The Holy Spirit gives us gospel glasses to see the gospel that's been on God's mind. Now, I got that, that idea from John Calvin. John Calvin used, used this idea of receiving glasses. You can't see something, but when you get glasses, you suddenly see it. We've been to 3D movies maybe where you, you got the, the 3D glasses. We've all experienced this sense where I'm, where I'm at the eye doctor and suddenly the lens drops down and we go, now I see it. So I want us to look at verses 10 through 13 where Paul's going to explain to us that while unbelievers can't see the value of the gospel, we do see the value of the gospel because God has given us Holy Spirit glasses. So look at verse 10. And by the way, let me remind you that verse 9 is frequently pulled out of context. You will often hear people say this, we don't know what heaven will be like. 
We don't know what the future will be like. And then they quote verse 9. Things which eye has not seen, ear heard, nor has entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared. So we really don't know. And this verse is going, please, please stop ripping me out of my context. That's not what I mean. This verse is not saying, ah, we don't have any idea what's coming in the future. It's actually saying the opposite. We have a great understanding of what's coming in the future. Because look at the next verse. Eye hasn't seen it, ear hasn't heard it, it hasn't entered the heart of man, but ours has because, look what he says, to us, God has revealed them. How? Through the Spirit. So the point he's making here is that the Spirit of God gives us these new glasses and the things that we would have never known that God has for us. We suddenly go, I do see what God has for us. But the fact that Paul says, they're given to us through the Spirit, he begins to use um, a, kind of an, uh, an, uh, an illustration from logic that likes under, or like understands like, okay? So, for example, I don't know what's on your mind. I might look at some of your faces right now and have some idea, <laughs> and I won't share that. But you, you don't know what's on my mind, and I don't know what's on your mind unless you choose to share that with me. So what we saw is that the gospel has been on God's mind from eternity past. But because it's on God's mind, and the Holy Spirit understands God's mind, He's able to help us to understand what's on God's mind, so now it's on our mind. Look how Paul explains this. He says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Just, just pause for a What does he mean by the depths of God? Try to get your brain around this, which is impossible. How much does God know? When the Bible speaks of his understanding, it uses phrases like unfathomable wisdom. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so much higher are God's thoughts than our thoughts. God knows everything, not only everything actual, but everything possible. We aren't even beginning to scratch the surface. We think, yeah, I went to Bible school. I know a couple things about the Bible. We're stupider than stumps compared to God. My hard drive is a little Tandy 300 from 20 years ago. God's hard drive is this incredible, complex thing. And that's one of the reasons why he can't tell us everything, because our little gourds would blow up. So the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to God, but the things which he has revealed belong to us. And so Paul says, the Spirit searches even the depths of God, which, by the way, doesn't mean he, he, he gives us every deep thought of God, but the idea is he knows every deep thought of God. So then Paul uses this idea of like, is able to understand like. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So if I were to say, hey God, what's on your mind? I might not know. But if I said, hey Holy Spirit, what's on God's mind? He would say, I know everything on God's mind because I am God. And because he knows everything on God's mind, he then has the capacity to reveal those things to us. This is a similar idea to what we read in Romans 8. When we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives, 
God gave us the Spirit as this wonderful gift for numerous reasons. The Holy Spirit gives us power to witness. The Holy Spirit transforms us from living in the deeds of the flesh to walking in the Spirit and having the fruit of the Spirit in our character. The Holy Spirit, here we learn, teaches us, but we also learn that the Holy Spirit prays for us. And Paul dips into the same idea of the mind of the Spirit in Romans 8. He says in Romans 8, 26, he goes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He goes, because there are times that we don't know how to pray. I was talking to somebody this week who said, I'm so, like, confused. And he's a Christian. He goes, my mind is so, like, out of whack right now. He goes, I, I can't even pray. All I can say to God is, please. I can't even get words out. Please. But Romans 8 says, the Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So that doesn't mean he's speaking in tongues because they're not words. They're too deep for words. But then it goes on to say this. Who knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God? And so the Spirit of God, because he knows the mind of God, can transfer the things on our mind and organize and appropriate our prayers in a way that works towards the outcome of God's will. So it's just a cool thing to think about. God has given us these wonderful gospel glasses so that he can reveal to us what's on God's mind. But particularly what is on God's mind is not only the gospel, but particularly, specifically, on God's mind is the gifts of the gospel that he wants not only to give to you, but he wants you to come to enjoy and appreciate and value. In fact, when Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says he did that for the joy set before him. It wasn't just that he could go, I did it, I did it, I did it. It was because he was looking forward to that joyful time when he would reveal that to you personally and to me personally. And then he would watch me like a little kid be delighted in this gift that I have received. In fact, I had a funny experience this week. This week in our office, it was um, student worker appreciation. And I don't think Paul would mind, but many of you know our custodian, Paul, um, which, by the way, we're looking for someone who, who's interested in a part-time custodial position because Paul is going to need to step down because of his classes, and he asked me to remind you of that. But anyway, so because of Student Appreciation Day, one of our administrators elaborately made food and balloons and flowers and gifts. And in this break room was a wonderful table that had a big wrapped package on it that says, For Paul. So when Paul came into the office, I said, and, the, and all of the student workers are there, and the lady who prepared all of the gifts, had put them out on the table. And we said, Paul, go in and, and look what's in there. So he goes in, and we're all waiting outside. And he comes back out, and he goes, that's neat. And I go, Paul, hang on here. I said, I'm going to assume here that you probably didn't look carefully. He goes, why? I said, because there was no expression of gratitude. Someone went out of their way to give you free gifts. 
and you just said, that's neat. And he goes, wait, what? And he goes back in. He goes, oh, oh, I didn't see this. I didn't see this. Oh, thanks, thanks. Okay, that's kind of how the gospel is. To unbelievers, they can't express things to God. Thanks. So God gives us the spirit, not just to say, hey, look, you lousy sinner, Jesus died, because he's going, look, I, I, I'm like a, a father that just wants to pour out on you lavish gifts, and I want you to keep opening them and keep understanding them. That's why he gave you gospel glasses. So look what he says. He says in verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes inside me and gives me gospel glasses. Why? So that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Don't miss that. He's not just saying, so that you might know the meaning of life. This word, freely given, comes from the same word that we get the word grace from. These undeserved blessings. And can I tell you this? We don't even begin to know all of the things that have been freely given to us by God. In fact, we just sang the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. That passage comes from Ephesians 1, and I want to encourage you to think about that passage. Paul told the, the Ephesians of all the spiritual blessings that God has blessed them with. You have been chosen. You have been adopted. You have been forgiven. You have been given insight into the future. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have been given a great inheritance. But then he prays and he says, Father, having opened their eyes, I pray that you'll give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know the riches, the immeasurable riches that you've given to them. So God has given us these spiritual glasses so that as we're listening to the Bible, we're not just hearing God go, don't do this, stop doing that, knock it off. But he's going, look what I've done. Here's another blessing. Here's how secure you are. Here's how much I love you. Here's what I'm doing for you now. Here's what I did for you back then. Here's what I'm going to do for you in the future. So the whole Christian experience is all about this overwhelming waves of grace. You don't get one gift and God goes, that's it. The Bible says the law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ, and from his fullness we've all received, and grace upon grace. Maybe that's a way to, to think about coming to church. I wonder what God's going to open, another gift he's going to show me today, another thing he's going to remind me that he's done for me that'll cause me to love and praise him even more. And so it's, it's profound to think of what a privilege it is. And, and think from God's perspective. If he has given us things freely... And he's opening our eyes to see them. How does he feel when we go, thanks, like Paul? Does he go, hey, wait, did, 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 you, did you understand the things I've freely given to you? Oh, wait, I need to think a little more about them. So, unbelievers can't understand the gifts that are on God's mind. God gives believers glasses to see what's on his mind the free gifts of the gospel for us. But the last point Paul's going to make here is these spirit gospel glasses over time will lead us to think with God's mind. Now you go, wait, you take me in the deep end. Unbelievers can't understand the gospel which is on God's mind. Believers have been given glasses to understand the things that are on God's mind, the gospel and the gifts. But over time, what we're going to learn in conclusion is that 
having gospel glasses and being exposed to the scripture are eventually going to lead to me having God's mind. And guess what? When you have God's mind, you begin to believe the things God believes, and then you begin to behave the way God behaves. So the point is, gospel glasses do not just give us information. Gospel glasses are designed to lead to transformation. As I understand what God has done for me, it should change my life. So look how Paul closes, verse 14. He says, but a natural man, now here he's going to say, a guy without glasses, a soulish man, a guy that doesn't have the Holy Spirit inside of him, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. <laughs> Frankly, they're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because he doesn't have gospel glasses. They're spiritually praised. Let this help you instead of discourage you. When your loved ones laugh at you, when your coworkers think it's dumb that you like to study the Bible, when people mock you because you get excited about God, don't let that discourage you. Let that strengthen you and, and, and encourage you to go, you know what? You're helping my faith. And they go, why? You go, because the Bible talks about people like you. Don't say that to them. Just keep, those are one of your inside thoughts. I understand why you think I'm so foolish and weird and why I have different values and why I like to sing and go to church and read the Bible. I understand because you don't understand. The Bible says they're foolishness. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Think of it this way. To an unbeliever, not having these gospel glasses, giving money to God, why would you do that? That's stupid. You're going to need that money. You worked hard for it. Denying yourself certain things that are fun, why would you, why would you, life is short, so many girls, so little time, whatever. You know, not stockpiling all your stuff in this life. Why would you not do that? Why would you sacrifice and go to the mission field? Or why would you bring people into your home or downscale or give away a car? What, what are you people thinking? And Paul goes, oh, I get it. Unbelievers don't accept the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to them. But when they get gospel glasses, they do. When I first got married, some of you heard me tell this story. My wife's sister married a man, he was different, and um, my wife's sister said, I'd love to have you over for dinner, but I can't. And we're like, why? And she says, because my husband hates you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, do you have any other reason? <laughs> <laughs> I already figured my RSVP out, will not be attending, right? Why does he hate you? What, what do we do? I hardly even know him because he hates Christians, right? So a few years later, I was painting my house one summer, and he called and said, hey, you're painting your house? Why didn't you ask me to help you? And I just couldn't bear to share why. <laughs> because you hate me, and I usually don't ask people to hate me to help me paint my house. <laughs> you know, as I'm going, hey, who do you think might help me paint my house? Who hates me? <laughs> Speed dial. I have a list of people who hate me, right? So, but the same guy who hates me comes to help me paint my house. And while we're painting the house, God is my witness. He says, Tom, I've been thinking a lot about something. 
Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, of course, we're painting. I don't have time for stuff like that. We're painting, right? Can you imagine someone who tells his wife, I hate you, I hate this guy because he's a Christian, his wife because he's Christian, to, hey, let me help you paint your house. And by the way, could you help me understand why Jesus died? Those are called gospel glasses. The Bible says, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, but the same God who caused light to shine out of the darkness caused the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of Christ. But I want you to notice how Paul winds this down. In contrast to unbelievers, he says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. What does he mean by that? Well, again, what my point is, gospel glasses over time lead you to the ability to think with God's mind. And the Bible has two terms for that. One of them is a mature Christian, and the other term is a spiritual Christian. And that doesn't happen overnight. You cannot be a mature spiritual man over, overnight. It happens over time. Hebrews chapter 5 says, the milk of God's word is for babies in Christ, but solid food of the word is for those who are mature because over time, by exercising themselves with this book, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So you have gospel glasses. We all have the spirit of God in us. We all have the capacity to understand scripture. But it is not a given that therefore all of us have been transformed and are growing and becoming mature Christians. Because mature Christians, under the submissive influence of the Holy Spirit, begin to live like Christ. Because they begin to think like Christ. And they begin to ask themselves, what does Scripture say about this? They don't just blurt out whatever they think. Yeah, well, my old man used to beat me and look how it turned out for me. No, they think carefully. They have the ability, Paul says, to appraise all things. And then he says, and yet they're appraised by no man. So he's setting them up because what he's telling these Corinthians is, I know you've already formed your opinion of me and you think I'm a loser. But he says, the problem is by you thinking I'm a loser, you have displayed to me that you're not mature. So in chapter 4, he says, I don't really get that worried about what you think about me because your appraisal of me is not what matters. But God's appraisal of me was what matters. So would you please stop judging me and wait till God exposes my private life until God exposes my motives and then each of us will be praised by God. So notice how he closes. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, in spirit and in theory, because you have the Holy Spirit, you have the mind of Christ. Guess what? That's another blessing. God just opened up a package for you. He goes, when I put my spirit in you, I gave you a whole new way to think. So, there's a secular song, I got a new way to walk. Christians, I got a new way to think because I have the mind of Christ, right? But having the mind of Christ does not automatically mean that I think and live like Christ. That's biblical transformation. 
but it has to go through the mind. God transforms us with this book through our minds by the Holy Spirit. And so next week, and I want you to read ahead, Paul's going to say to the Corinthians, I would love to be able to interact with you as spiritual believers who are growing and understanding the things of God and seeing things the way God sees them, because, but I can't because you're acting like unbelievers. You're thinking like unbelievers. And frankly, he's gone, there's no excuse for that. You've been believers long enough, and there's a whole lot of people in the Christian faith who have been believers long enough but they have no experience of biblical transformation of their mind and their life. And, 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 and mark this down. There's a lot of people I know who know a lot about the Bible. They have a whole lot of information, but they're jerks. They've not experienced transformation. So this is an encouraging passage. And as we close, I want to just share a couple thoughts because it, it really does, does give us a, a wonderful understanding of like, wow, my Christian experience is guided by the the blessing of having gospel glasses. So what did the pastor speak about? Gospel glasses, the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to understand the things God has for us. Well, what should I do about it? Number one, on a regular basis, praise God for your glasses. Now I'm going to open your eyes and, and give you an example. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was Wait, I was blind, but now... So I'm singing, praise God, I was blind, but now I see. I don't think you saw this because we didn't sort of highlight it, but my favorite line, and I asked Benjamin to sing, and can it be? Because number one, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Go put that up at the grocery store. A lecture on the Savior's blood will be held at the Yardley Community Center. Who wants to come here? a lecture on the Savior's blood? Yeah, right. But if you did want to come, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? And here's Charles Wesley writing a beautiful reformed song, even as an Arminian. He goes, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But your eye brought forth a quickening ray. You gave me Holy Spirit glasses. That's in the Greek. Your eye brought forth a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So number one, frequently praise God for your gospel glasses. Lord, thank you. And if I get dull to the gospel, awaken me. Open my eyes afresh. Number two, don't just praise God for your gospel glasses. Continue to pray to sharpen your gospel glasses. Every time you read the Bible, you know what David said? He said in Psalm 119, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your word. I just pray for you all, God, open their eyes. <laughs> open their eyes, God. They're out there like this. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Open my eyes. So when you approach the Bible, you go, oh, I'm not getting anything out of it. Well, ask God, God, open my eyes. If, if you this morning say, this is just black words on white pages, ask God to open your eyes. Ask God to revive you in his word. And continue to pray, not just for yourself, but for your children, for greater insight and understanding as we just sang. I want to see Jesus. That comes as we pray. I want to encourage you. I frequently recommend a book, D.A. Carson's book, Praying with Paul. Almost every one of Paul's prayers is asking God to give believers a greater illumination of who Christ is 
and what he's done so that the result of that is they will be completely transformed in their lifestyle. So instead of going, dear God, just change me. Lord, this is what I pray. Philippians 1, may our love abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so that we can approve things that are excellent because we have the mind of Christ. And we can be sincere and blameless having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. So not only praise God for your glasses, pray that God will give you more glasses. Refine your glasses. Let me see Jesus. Show me the things that you have done for me. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things you've done for me. But then the result of that is then to be transformed. Third, remember the goal of your glasses is to reveal to you more about the grace of God. If every time you read the Bible, all you do is feel beat up and discouraged and God's mad at you, you're not reading it rightly. If you're a Christian, God's going, I want you to know the things I've freely given to you, not how disappointed I am in you. And then finally, make it your goal that your gospel glasses are leading to a godly life. No point in having glasses if you're just going to walk around banging into everybody because you don't like them. So, we've been blessed, haven't we? Let's take a moment to give thanks to the Lord for that. Father, thank you so much for everybody that's here. Even the fact that probably most people that are here, except maybe children, are here because they want to be. Even that's a marvel that any one of us would want to be learning the Bible. And can it be? Thank you, Lord, so much for changing our affections, changing our will, changing our heart, giving us the spirit. Lord, there are some this morning who have become dull and insensitive. They don't read, they're not studying, they've lost their way. Please refresh and encourage them. But I also want to thank you, Father, for many people in this congregation who are growing, eagerly learning. And as Paul said, we teach these things to others. The things that God has revealed to us, these are the things we speak. Help us to speak freely of the things of the gospel to others, building one another up in the Lord. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's still blind to the gospel, that you will open their eyes so that they can take an interest in Christ repenting of their sins, they can believe that Jesus died and rose again. Bless our fellowship, Lord. Help us as a church to grow in a deeper understanding of all that Christ is and what he's done for us. And as a result, may this church be a godly church full of people who love one another because they're loved by Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.